The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see so many people here tonight. Before I get started, I'd like to introduce Debbie Norgard over there in the corner. She's the office manager. She doesn't often come on Sunday nights, so I thought it'd be nice for people to see the face behind our office and doing much more more recently in the last few months to kind of run all the communications, manage the web and the emailing and the office volunteer staff and many other functions besides the financial management of the center. All in 16 hours a week, <laughs> hard to imagine. So you can send lots of loving kindness to Debbie. So we're finished now with the topic of wisdom for a while at least, but you'll see tonight as we begin the, the new topic of energy or effort that in order to understand what right effort looks like in meditation and more generally in life, we have to understand uh, you know, where from what is our efforting being born. Because as I'm sure you recognize, you know, it's relatively easy for us human beings to make a lot of effort. I was mentioning this morning, you know, when you fly over a city like Minneapolis, it's amazing how much effort it takes to build a city or how much effort it takes to, you know, get an education or this and that. So human beings don't seem to have a problem making effort. We make a lot of effort. You know, we invade countries. That takes a lot of effort. We do all kinds of things. We build big monuments. That takes a lot of effort. We avoid doing things. That takes a lot of effort. <laughs> so when we talk about efforting or right energy or right effort, we're really talking about effort born from wisdom or are born from understanding like what is the problem we're trying to address in our life. <clears throat> and, it, and it always has to do with checking in to the present moment because that's where right effort comes out of the present moment. A lot of the time we impose an idea, oh, I need to do this, or I need to do that. But with uh, this path, it's really about beginning by tuning in and, in a sense, getting real with our experience, the experience of the body, the experience of the mind. And often as we settle into the moment, we get a clearer sense of what's not right, what's off, what's out of balance. And then, and then right effort, it's so natural because it's just a matter of seeing clearly or feeling deeply how it is now. We seem to know what to do. It's, and this is not just in terms of our own mind states or our own body situation, but even in community, you know, you go home, let's say you live with a bunch of people, you go home, I notice a lot of the times that I immediately react. I see all the things that are wrong, all the things, you know, that my wife hasn't done that I wanted her to do or something like that. And I can kind of get in this uh, 
hyper-control mode. But instead, if I go home and I notice how I'm feeling, well, so much of that effort to sort of fix everything that I think needs to be fixed in the kitchen, you know, putting away, doing this, so much of it is just based on an inner disturbance. So what really needs, the effort that's really required, is for me to feel, to notice how out of balance my heart is, and just to sit with that a little bit. And that takes effort, too. So we have to remember that the effort, you know, because when we hear the word effort, we almost immediately imagine or think of doing something concrete in the world. But being quiet is also an effort. Reflecting on what's going on, that takes an effort. Uh, remaining, like uh, refraining from activity is an effort. Like knowing that we don't know what we should do, and so we're just going to stay put for a few moments, that takes a lot of effort. Sometimes it's easier to just continue with our frenetic activity. It takes a lot more effort to stay put for a while, to sit down, to feel what we're feeling, to acknowledge honestly that this mind is confused. This mind doesn't know. Not knowing is like this. That's really a, a powerful act of compassion arising out of wisdom and right effort. The effort to refrain from doing, acting impulsively, but just to stay put for a while. So for probably the next five weeks or so until the end of the year, I'll be talking and we'll be discussing about what right effort looks like, both in our meditation practice but also in our lives. So it's going to be nice to hear from people and, uh, and how we're all, all of us in our own ways, we're going to notice a lot of preconceived ideas that we have about efforting. I mean, basically, one of the ways we beat ourselves up is we think we're not trying hard enough. Isn't that true? I mean, maybe there are a few exceptions, but probably most of us have this deep imprint in our mind, maybe from school, maybe from our parents, maybe who knows from where, that we're not doing enough. We're not good enough. We're not trying hard enough. We don't care enough. If only we were trying harder, things would be better. So there's, there's going to be this impulse into activity and uh, a kind of blind view that, you know, if I just push a little harder or try a little harder, you know, things will finally get right or be right, start to work, look better. We could probably say that wise effort, right effort, is born from a place of humility, you know, understanding, like, how much effort we've made that has been wasteful and, and actually harmful for ourselves and others. I mean, just imagine, like, if we think about all those times our minds were proliferating, obsessing about some project, which is work, of course, and how destructive that was, whether the project was to connect with a certain person or renovate our home or strategize how we're going to get what we want or how we're going to outdo somebody or get revenge. So, so much of our mental effort 
is unproductive. Imagine if, you know, we often think about mental activity as being invisible. But just imagine, you know, if it actually was somehow visible. If we could somehow project, if we were all here in this room projecting all of our mental activity, like we all had our little holograms projecting out there. And all of our planning and all of our worrying and all of our speculation and comparing and judging and all of that was just being displayed. I mean, it would really be, it would really be terrible and terrifying. <laughs> I think. I mean, my contribution would be. <laughs> but it doesn't mean, you know, given that there's a lot of what we would say unwholesome or unskillful efforting, just because that's true, it doesn't mean that the spiritual path is about not making effort. The Buddha was very clear. I mean, he talked about efforting probably almost as much as anything he talked about. And the interesting thing is his last words, you know, and as a, as a myth at least or as a legend, you know, it's nice to imagine this guy, this historic teacher as, you know, let's just imagine, let's just assume he was really mindful, really awake, bright, all the way up until his death, you know, and he had been teaching for 45 years, articulated his path, his path of mindfulness, of awakening, many different ways. And then right before he died, he had one last thing to say. And I, I like just, I mean, we don't really know, but it, I like imagining that he was really conscious of the, his last instruction. You know, it wasn't just like happened to be on his mind, but you know, he cared, you know, his life, at least the last part of his life, the last 45 years, seemed to be completely operating out of compassion. So you can imagine, here's this very in-tune person, knowing he doesn't have much time, what would he leave the people he really cares about with? And he said something like, now then, practitioners, I exhort you, all fabrications are subject to decay. Bring about completion by being heedful. Or another translation, indeed, practitioners, I declare this to you. It is in the nature of all formations to dissolve, attain perfection through diligence. But both these two different translations, they really are about this term apamada, is the Pali word. Apamada means heedful or vigilant or attentiveness. And vigilance is a nice word. I mean, it kind of rubs us the wrong way, but when we actually look, when you look at the definition of vigilance, you know, like a vigil, and it, it's related to the word light, it's like keeping watch. Holding a vigil is like staying up all night. And so, not falling asleep, basically. Not just falling into our habit energy, running on habit energy, getting lost in our patterns of reactive conditions or reactive conditioning. So this is a word the Buddha talked a lot about, apamada. 
wakefulness or heedfulness, not negligence. In one passage in the Dhammapada, the collection of verses in the Buddhist tradition, mostly verses spoken by the Buddha, in the second chapter, vigilance or this attentiveness is the path to the deathless. Negligence is the path to death. The vigilant do not die, the negligent are as if already dead. Knowing this distinction, vigilant sages rejoice in vigilance, delighting in the field of the noble ones. <clears throat> so it's not like a heavy burden. Vigilance, you know, we, this is the problem with our, you know, we have to like recreate or rejuvenate these words. Because doesn't vigilance and heedfulness sound heavy? And efforting itself sounds really heavy. But efforting, it's really about uh, knowing, much more about knowing how to surf. So instead of like the Greek image of, I forget the character who has to push the ball up the hill. Syphilis? What is it? Sisyphus. Yeah, I said syphilis. (laughs) You know, that's kind of the idea we have about making effort. You know, it's like, you know, it doesn't really work, but we don't have anything better to do, so <laughs> we'll push the ball up the hill, and it's going to roll down. And but, but efforting is really more about attunement. And you know, we know this. I mean, we've discovered this in time, in times of our life where we're doing some generous act, or we're doing something we love doing, and we accomplish a lot, but it didn't feel like a burden because it was all done out of love. It wasn't like a big have to or and even if it was like even if there was some sense of uh, goal like we're doing it in order to get something we're getting rid of the brush in the backyard in order to have some you know space in the backyard but there can be joy in that activity and it's the joy that actually allows things to get done and it doesn't mean we're not exhausted at the end And it doesn't mean that at some point we might need a change of venue, like that the joy kind of runs so far and then we need a break. You know, but it's not even like a break from efforting. It's just a change of venue, just efforting in a different way. I mean, this is how I like to think about it. As human beings, as living beings, more than anything, we're nothing but movement. I mean, that's what is a human being anyway? We're just the movement of mental and physical energy. Blood is moving. I mean, do our cells often complain? They're always working. The heart's always working. I mean, everything in nature is always working. Somehow, fall is becoming winter. Winter becomes spring. Birds fly thousands of miles. I mean, this is what nature is made up of, efforting. And yet, for us, because we've got this mind that can turn things into this and that, and me and you, it feels troublesome. I mean, I remember a lot of the time in my younger days thinking, you know, God, I can't wait till I'm older. You know, older, wiser, have a house, have a partner, you know, all these, have a practice. You know, I used to think in my beginning years of practice, I can't wait till I can sit cross-legged. I was so stiff when I started meditating. For years, I had to sit in a chair and then kneeling down, and finally, 
after like three or four years of continuous practice, I could finally sit cross-legged. And then I, then I like, really wanted to sit cross-legged comfortably. <laughs> that took another five or seven years. <laughs> and on and on like this. You know, we keep like creating these like mountains, and then we think we have to climb them. There's this great uh, teaching from Ajahn Tanisaro from his teacher, one of his teachers, I forget which one. And uh, the, the basic, the essence of the teaching was mountains are only heavy if you have to move them. And so like getting through our life, whatever you happen to be thinking about, raising your kids or cleaning your house or you know, whatever project you have for yourself, it's heavy when we think we have to do it. So it's when we come into the present moment, it takes away the mountain. Because the present moment isn't a big thing. It's a very ephemeral thing. So engaging the present moment isn't a big thing. And we can do that. We can engage the present moment with love. But if we're engaging this idea of something big that I have to do, you know, I have to be a meditator. Well, that can be a big thing, especially if we've been thinking about being a meditator for a while. So because of all that proliferation, it's just big thing. I've got to be good. I've got to get up all, give up all of these things. I've got to stop fidgeting. I've got to stop thinking about those things. I've got to stop judging myself. I've got to be interested in the breath. And it, it just gets more and more complicated, bigger and bigger. And then we sit down, and it just looks so big. And then we go, oh, I need more effort. I need more energy. You know, I need green tea. <laughs> or I need to be inspired, you know. So you go looking for a teacher. We look for a teacher to inspire us or something to inspire us, to give us the strength. But it's really misunderstanding, efforting. The effort is in a moment to understand what the problem is in this moment. You know, we have to look, we have to take our cue from touching, being intimate with this moment. This moment tells us what the effort is. Of course, the effort's always the same. It's the effort of surrender. I mean, you can, we could, I could probably generate 20 words. You could call it the effort of surrender or of opening or the, the effort of loving, of being vulnerable. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to talk about the effort, but it's actually not a big deal because it's only about this moment. So if I talked about surrendering and then we took it in, in terms of our whole life, this idea of our whole life, well, it would be impossible. But this moment we can surrender to. This moment we're willing to be vulnerable to. Is there anybody who is unwilling to be completely vulnerable to the way it is now? You know, we're willing to because it's already this way. We're already vulnerable to this moment. And, you know, is there anybody unwilling to do what this moment is act asking right now? You know, as we settle into this moment, you know, for a lot of us, the moment's simply asking for us to relax, to be open, to listen to let the words make some imprint in the mind. 
to be unafraid, to hear what we're hearing, you know, whatever, to stay awake. It's really that simple, just to show up. And any thought about what we have to do tomorrow or what we should have done weeks ago, then in the present moment, that's just a thought, an unpleasant thought that needs to be received. We need to be vulnerable or open to having that worry arise as a thought in the present moment. It doesn't have to be anything more than that exposure to the unpleasantness of that worry or that judgment or whatever it is for us. But that's actually workable. I'm not saying it's easy, but it isn't this huge mountain. There's a beautiful poem um, from Rumi about not going back to sleep. I'll just share just a few lines. The breeze at dawn has secrets to tell you. Don't go back to sleep. You must ask for what you really want. Don't go back to sleep. People are going back and forth across the door sill where the two worlds touch. The door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. I like this poem, this stanza, because if I, can, I can almost viscerally feel the energy that he's pointing to. And it's this energy of joy or of love or possibility or freedom that every moment contains. It's the energy that allows the system to do whatever comes next. And if we reflect in those moments when we feel like we can't do what's next, like we're depressed, overwhelmed by life for whatever reason, or despairing, then we want to be honest, like, because we feel cut off in those moments, right? That it's like part of the story of being in those mind states is that we can't do it. We don't know what to do and we can't do it. We just can't do it. One of the things uh, my teacher, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, says often is that that when, you know, often we get confused and we think, okay, here I am in my practice, here I am in my life, and I need energy. Maybe we rightly uh, recognize, oh yeah, there's an absence of energy. I'm depleted. I'm overwhelmed. And so we recognize I need energy, but we often think that I need to get energy from somewhere else. That's the mistake. We're, we correctly see that we lack energy, but we mistakenly think that somehow energy can come from outside of this moment. I mean, when you reflect on it, it's actually absurd. Like, how could this moment get energy from anywhere but this moment? It has to come from here and now. But as soon as we sort of, but what we're doing is we're, in a sense, fixated, we're fixated on depletion, on what we're assuming is an absence of energy. And then it's like we bounce off, we react to that feeling of being depleted into thinking about, like we're imagining energy somewhere, wherever that might be, you know, when I find my teacher, when I 
get to Mexico for a two-week vacation or when I, you know, fix my body. But we somehow create this promise that we'll all get energy when conditions are different than they are now. And you see how we've locked ourselves into hell. Because we just said, I can't have energy now because I've just defined the situation. I need this in order to feel alive, to be enlivened. And because this isn't here, I must be dead. And we can talk ourselves, basically create a reality of being dead or depressed or overwhelmed. So what's our alternative? Well, like I mentioned right at the beginning of the talk, we want to unpack the experience. We have to, I mean, I know it, it's a little of a, this chicken and egg. We have to have enough faith or confidence that energy, life, is available. And it's immeasurable. It isn't limited. It's the mind states that limit our experience. It's our views and beliefs and mind states that limit our experience. I've been uh, around Rini Howard a lot lately. Some of you know she's the chair of Kamagon's board of directors, and she's in hospice care now and very ill and weak. And uh, But sometimes, uh, even though her body's not in such great shape, sometimes there's just a, a very powerful, palatable feeling of love and power and peace and clarity that just is there, manifesting right there in that bed. And we talk, I've talked to Rini several times about how, you know, on the one hand, the body may be weak and painful and this and that, but it doesn't, that the experience of love isn't necessarily weak or sick, or the experience of clarity isn't necessarily afflicted with disease. So we, this is, like we can have a very difficult life situation, lost a job, unworkable situation at home with our relationship or relationships or whatever. You know, there are many different ways for life to be difficult for us. But we don't have to assume, just because of the way we've been conditioned, the habits that we have, we don't need to assume that somehow love, life energy has been cut off. That just because life is really difficult, that we should have the experience of be de being dead, that the mind, heart should be deadened by the difficult circumstances we're going through. And you know what? We all know this experience because there have been difficult times probably in everybody's life that you remember where you didn't feel deadened by it. You felt enlivened by the difficulty. Right? Can you bring one of those situations to mind? You're in the hospital visiting somebody, or you yourself are in the hospital. I remember this time in my life, I was a young man. I did something stupid. <laughs> and uh, I, I got released from jail. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I felt so alive. I, I, had, I, had some, I had some troubles I had to deal with. 
but I felt so alive, enlivened by the difficulties that I that I had a, sort of created for myself. And uh, it was like at some point, and pretty soon, right after the mistake had been made, <laughs> I kind of I knew enough to just turn to it, like not to try to control, not to try to fix the outcome, but just to kind of surrender to it. And it was uh, it was a really powerful experience for me, and a very enlivening experience. And you know, I, I've, I've done that a couple times since, and I've also brought that up in talking to other people who were really in a crisis that probably from almost anybody's perspective would have felt unworkable. Like, no, this can't be happening, except much louder. And then to be invited to say yes to it and to notice how enlivening that is. It really... Uh, we feel like in the middle of the universe. And it's not that we know what to do even, but it's a, it's a different posture. Once we start believing our thoughts about the situation, we're starting to, it seems like a, a magic, but we're cutting ourselves off from life. We're sort of creating a sense of a somebody who's cut off. And we start feeling dead and then that simply confirms that we're really in bad shape. And then that, of course, makes us panic even more. We all know, I mean, this is basically what a panic attack is, except we're doing it all the time, and it's not like the formal medical panic attack. But uh, when you look at a, a panic attack, it's like the system starts to get upset, and what do we do when we notice that? We tighten which just makes the system more upset, more tight. And so we tighten, and we have this sort of implosion of tension, in both mental and physical tension. And of course, as it builds, we feel we're going to die. But we keep relating to it in a way that just builds the energy, builds the, uh, the tension. You know, it's like we're trying to avoid feeling what we're feeling, but it just reinforces the intensity of the feeling. So this can be a way of experimenting, and not just this week, but for the next several weeks as we're talking about effort. When you're feeling deadened, when you're feeling overwhelmed, see if there's a way to relax, to turn toward, to say yes, to to pop the bubble or to poke a few holes in the strong thought that this is unworkable. Like you could just say the phrase, well, maybe, maybe, yes, or maybe not so to the, the words that are saying, I can't take this, this is not okay, this has to change. And another way to kind of pop the bubble or to break the cycle is to just take a step, just to do something. Because when we feel paralyzed, it's like the story is, I can't do anything, this is too much, it isn't my fault, it's out there. So just to do something about it is, uh, is sort of uh, demonstrating, or maybe not so. 
like maybe this story that it's unworkable isn't true. Well, we'll do it anyway. We'll just do something anyway. We'll stand up, we'll make a phone call. We'll go clean the house. We'll go take a bath. We'll make ourselves a nice cup of soup. So that it's just that like letting life live through us, just doing the next thing, is a way to energize our life when we're feeling deadened, just to do the next thing. And like I mentioned before, sometimes we need to change venues. So, you know, maybe it was enlivening for the first hour or for the first week or first year, but the second year, it's overwhelming. Like I've been uh, hanging out with my dad the last few days a couple times, and he's been caretaking my mom, uh, who's in, in end-stage Alzheimer's now. And, uh, and he's gone through periods over the nine years or so of being exhausted. And he's just going through another one of those periods where it's really intense for him. And uh, it's, like, it's like a time, you know, he just, it's not like he, he, he doesn't want to work or doesn't want to live his life or kind of connect with life. He just needs a change. He just needs to do something else. And so we can do that. We can find something else to pour our life into. And then when we go back, it isn't, it isn't so oppressive. So I like this idea that, you know, life isn't about avoiding work. You know, it's just about finding joy. So what, what can this body-mind do that will be enlivening? Then do that, you know? And then when, it, when it's no longer enlivening, you know, maybe we change our view, but maybe we've sort of gone as far as we can go in this direction and now we need to do this to feel enlivened and then we can do this and then we'll do that but it's really that's in a sense how we find the thread of our life just finding what's enlivening you know i some some of the people know that i spend a lot of time here and sometimes people point out and i even pointed out to myself you know Maybe this isn't healthy for me to be here so much. But often then I'll look and I'll go, but you know, I feel mostly enlivened being here. And, and I think that, you know, instead of having some outside standard about like whether what we're doing is healthy, we want more of an internal barometer. Like, am I feeling more alive or less alive? Am I feeling more free or less free? More reactive or less reactive? And that, and that kind of helps us sort of making those choices in a way that enlivens us. So we'll keep talking about this over the next weeks, but we have about 20 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people what you've learned in your own life in terms of energy, in terms of making effort, questions that you have from the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? Yes, please say your name.
Yeah, well, that's the relevant question, isn't it? And so the change of venue would come from having really dropped in to that experience. So you're in a job, you really, you've been committed and, you know, giving yourself wholeheartedly to the task at hand, receiving whatever you receive, your paycheck, praise, relation, wholesome relationships, and you do that. And then over time, <clears throat> it doesn't feel enlivening for all kinds of reasons. Even if the job site is healthy, but let's, you know, it, often it's not healthy, but let's just assume it's healthy. But for whatever reason, it's not enlivening for you. So to, to really uh, not react to that feeling like you're being deadened in the job, not to just react to it, but just to drop in. So it's, a, it's really leading with reflection, really feeling what it's like, because we don't want to assume that it's the job itself. Like it might be our attitude that needs correction as opposed to a new job. Or it might be that we haven't been direct with one of our, you know, one of our bosses and that the relationship is unhealthy and that we haven't really spoken up. And we just need to say something. And boy, that can be enlivening, you know, to kind of say something that's needed to be said for a long time. That can feel really enlivening. And uh, we can feel alive for weeks after doing that. Just like we can feel dead for months not doing it. So we want to really settle in. But sometimes we settle in and it isn't even about this or person or these bosses or the job itself being bad. But sometimes we just need a change. It's just not where we're supposed to be. I mean, I know that sounds a little bit like magical thinking, you know, we're destined to be over here. But I think there's some truth to it. Even when we're in good relationships, that doesn't mean we should stay married or stay partners. Just because we love the other person, just because the other person loves us, just because we have synergy. It's like we have to feel alive in the relationship. And we have to keep working at how to be alive in the relationship so that in moments, at least, there's a kind of effortless and effortlessness and joy and aliveness in it. And then when we've exhausted all ways, all our skill to make it alive, an enlivening relationship, then maybe it's time to have a different relationship or to at least leave the relationship, I guess is what I should say. Um, so it's like we want to first assume that it isn't about the situation, the external situation and really work on uh, what we're avoiding doing, what we're avoiding seeing, what uh, kind of unhealthy attitude might have gotten established. But at some point, we may realize that there still may be an unhealthy attitude, but I can't see it. And I can't work with it unless I see it. And so sometimes we change the job or the relationship. If we go somewhere else, we find the same situation in a different place. But now we can see what was off over here. You know, it would have been nice to have seen it over here, but now it's too late. That's done, over with. But now we have another opportunity to see what we didn't see before. And we can do the work that we weren't able to do before. Other thoughts people have? What have you learned in your life? Yes, Alicia? Yes, um, I have a question when you say, when you say drop in. Um, <clears throat> Um, okay, well, I've got an example yesterday. Um, 
for about three hours. I was trying to work on paper stuff and numbers, and typically I get really anxious. And I was so anxious that I couldn't do it. You know, it's like I'd sit down and I'd jump up right away again. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down for two minutes, and then I get a break, you know. And and then the break was that, that I could go do something that I'd be moving around with, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as I settled down enough, I said, okay, now I'm going to go back, I'm going to do five minutes. And um, But when you say drop in, do you mean like drop into the experience of the anxiety, mm-hmm. or um, drop in where? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say drop into the heart. But heart, we mean like the heart of what's happening. So things are always moving. Like I said at the beginning of the talk, you know, we are defined by movement. But in a sense, we're afraid to be intimate with the movement of the body and mind, the emotion. So we want to learn to be there with that and and not be driven by a reactive a reactivity to the movement, but to be able to open to it. And then, yeah, there may be a lot of fear in like really turning toward that work that you've avoided for a while. But you might discover that you can actually be as vulnerable as you are, or be as fearful as you are, or be as anxious as you are. That you don't need to distract, or we don't need to distract ourselves. Just because there's anxiety, doesn't mean it's useful or loving, compassionate to distract ourselves from it. Maybe actually the most compassionate thing to do is just to be right in the middle of it. And it's such a relief not to have to run from all of our, you know, emotion. You know? So then you just kind of like let yourself be anxious and then just do the task anyway and just like detach from the anxiety? No, you're, you're, you're trying to, you know, this is the amazing thing about emotion. Like any of our, what we call unwholesome emotions, like anxiety or fear or grief or craving or lust, any of these emotions ultimately are just energy. They're just movement. And some, some emotions tend to be, look more active and some emotions tend to be more dead, like depression, despair. But even those seemingly dead emotions or deadening emotions are just packed with energy. And so as we move into them with a real, uh, real clarity and fearlessness to whatever degree we're able to in that moment, so we don't want to like set up, I got to open up to it completely. We just need to move in the direction of that emotion we start to feel enlivened. Notice this. The next time you're really angry, instead of being lost in the anger, notice that you're angry, open to the experience of being angry, and you will feel how much energy is there. Next time you feel overwhelmed by life, really open to that, and you will feel really enlivened by that. One of the things that I do regularly when I'm feeling overwhelmed or depressed, I lie down, I invite in the experience, And it's almost like I die, in a sense, of like saying yes to that feeling and kind of bottom up. It's like like opening to something that the habit energy does not want to open to. It's a little bit like death. The habits that don't want to feel what I'm feeling, they have to die momentarily in order to feel what I'm feeling. But it's like 
it's like a spring comes out of that, like a blossoming of energy comes out of that. I feel so enlivened. And I've really learned over the years that I don't need to be afraid of being depressed because I just let it, I mean, I know it's different for different people. I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is going to be true for everybody. But for me, at least, most of the time, I can hit bottom and uh, kind of rebound from it. Okay. Because yesterday it was like I was just was going from one extreme emotion to another. And I was trying to grocery shop, and I suddenly was in grief for my recent father's death. Mm-hmm. And um, so I cried here. Well, I didn't want to go to shop, and I thought, well, everybody will think I have a cold, I'm okay. Well, after a while, it's like, God, I, have, I need to stop, you know? I said, well, I think I'll leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just left my cart and, and went out to my car. I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop, you know? And I did, and it was like less than five minutes. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I can go back and finish my shopping. Yeah. Is is that dropping in? Is that what yeah, you're that sounds similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's just like a basic trust. Like when we're feeling something, it's not a mistake. Whether it's depression or anger or lust, it's not like some cosmic mistake that we've got this emotion. It's just something asking to move. And the thing is, we've got so many layers of habits, we don't realize how we're suppressing or repressing the emotion. And so we have to, it, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, work, the work of opening to begin to allow things to move. Now, for you, it, was re- it seemed relatively easy. I mean, but probably a lifetime of work made, that, made you able to recognize what was going on, to give you the confidence just to leave your car and to go in the car and to let things move and to trust that you don't, you don't need to worry if you start to sob, you're going to sob forever. It's just something wanted to move. You gave it permission to move. Then when that thing was done moving, it was done moving. And there's a kind of refreshment for not having to repress or suppress something that wanted to move. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yes, share your name again. Is it Kat? Catherine, yeah. Keep doing. Every time you just feel it, whatever you lay down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the first thing is we want to change our attitude about the guilt, so that because it's so easy to say open to it, but opening to it is a real art, and it means going beyond our conditioned relationship to the guilt. You know, I've gu- I'm guilty, I feel guilty because, you know. So we need to see it as a present moment phenomenon. Like when you say, I feel guilty, what is the actual experience in the heart when you feel guilty? So that's not a story. That's an actual movement. It's a, it's a something, it's a force in the heart, in the body, energetically. So that's what we want to get interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's there's a particular 
skill, which is as you're feeling what you call burning, then you're going to have to notice the unpleasantness. Because if you don't see the unpleasantness, you'll react to it. So you have to tune in. And, and basically, that's your, that's your uh, way in, is to be finding the unpleasantness and saying, yes, 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 this too, this too, this too, all the way in. Yes. Oh yeah, uh, I, I started formally in '82, uh, but uh, yeah, and I've had a lot of guidance and support over the years. Of course. Well, on the one hand, we we can only do it on our own. The support we get from other people is the encouragement to trust our experience and that there's no way around it, basically. We can temporarily avoid it, you know, when we don't have enough balance in the mind to turn to what's going on. And we need some skill at temporary, temporarily avoiding strong emotional mind states that are present when we don't have enough confidence or enough stability to turn to them and say yes, you know, as I was just saying with Catherine's comment. But uh, the real support we need is somebody who's done some of this work and can say with a lot of confidence that this is the way. You know, running is not the way. Turning toward our life is the way to energy, to more, to, to the capacity to do what needs to be done. What's deadening is to avoid, to deny, to distract, to feel helpless. Those are all uh, responses that are deadening. And the responses, responses that are enlivening all have to do with turning toward the present moment experience. I can say that with a lot of confidence now. I, that doesn't mean I can always do it. <clears throat> but even when I can't do it, to some degree, I understand I can't do it now. But it's like we're, we're just sort of temporarily waiting until the system is balanced enough, there's enough confidence, enough stability in the mind, enough energy to do this. But there's all kinds of uh, tricks that we learn the more we practice. At first, it feels a lot very linear, this work. You know, we're like chipping away at some huge edifice. And it can feel a little bit overwhelming, but we don't know any other way, so we're willing to do it. But later, the more we practice, the whole idea that there's an ed edifice is uh, semi-transparent. Like, you know, it isn't, it isn't as big of a job as we think it is. Thinking it's a big job is what makes it a big job. Thinking that I'm a you know, despicable human being with a lot of conditioned problems, you know, makes us a despicable human being with a lot of conditioned problems. So a lot of what, a lot of the entanglements that weigh us down uh, arise because of our point of view. And that gets transformed. The more we feel energized by life, we feel enlivened by life, the brightness that comes from feeling that joy, that uh, kind of enlivening quality, 
it allows us to see through so much of what would otherwise seem heavy and unworkable. I mean, from a conventional point of view, life is depressing. It really is. I mean, we may not notice it so much in Minneapolis, but all we have to do is broaden our awareness and look past the sort of surface to see how depressing life is from a particular point of view, from a non-spiritual point of view. It is. Beings are born and they die. Beings are born, they struggle to survive, they struggle for happiness, inevitably everything they have is taken from them and then they die. Beings are born, they tend to have a lot of greed and aversion, they tend to act out that greed and aversion, they cause suffering for themselves and others. That describes... So, but the interesting thing is, if that's true, why, why would we be interested in opening to life as it is? How could that possibly make sense to open to life if that's the truth? So it isn't the truth. It's just the surface. And when we're living on the surface, life is unbearable. And the only thing that makes it bearable is distraction, you know, sense distraction. You know, we live for Friday. We live for, you know, having a nice or several nice glasses of wine or whatever it is for us. We're, we live for that sort of brief escape. But, you know, a spiritual person is somebody who realizes that's not enough. Is there anything else? And that's, if you look at the spiritual traditions, they come out of that investigation. Is there something else? Yeah, but I, I, I hope I didn't imply that it wasn't, that um, <clears throat> basically be completely pragmatic about what works. And like I said, so it's like sometimes we can't just turn to what's going on because the mind's not stable enough. And so we need to do whatever we can do to restore, uh, to restore stability. And we should be totally pragmatic about what helps do that. Yeah, so absolutely. Anything that works, medicine, diet, activities, meditation, gratitude practice, forgiveness practice, you know, anything. Playing ping pong. <laughs> I have a lot of joy playing ping pong. But really, and not to, because people, they, they kind of create these things. This is, there's one thing I think, though, to, to say about people who use uh, medicine is that I notice with people who use medicine that they want it to be all or nothing, like it's a chemical problem. And so then they, they kind of like put their eggs in this basket. Okay, I'll deal with it as a chemical problem. And I think uh, the way the Buddhist tradition is and the way that seems to me the Buddha taught is, you know, you want to be very pragmatic, and you want to, you don't want to just uh, see it in terms of one thing. It's a system thing. My healthcare provider is kind of talking about that. Mm -hmm. I haven't tried anything. Yeah. 
Good. I think we have to leave it here. It's 8.30. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Noticing how everything that's been stirred up can settle back down. And perhaps noticing the natural bubbling energetic quality of the mind and heart. And notice how the mind, the heart, has no boundaries. It's, in a sense, immeasurable, naturally bright. And we can aspire to allow this energy of love and joy and clarity manifest in our life cause for happiness for ourselves and for all beings. Why not aspire to be a cause for peace and for happiness and for ease in the world? Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.